Greetings, Internet. Welcome back to The Circuit. I'm Jay Goldberg. Ben Baharin is literally off the grid. But today we're going to have another episode of our Back to Basics series. And today's topic is the wireless standards. We'd originally planned to follow up our last installment on Broadcom with a, a look at Qualcomm. But as we prepared that script, we realized over half the content of that topic touched on today's topic. So today we're going to talk about the wireless standards, and next time we'll talk about Qualcomm. The whole point of the series is to give us more time to dig into a single topic. Right? It gives us the opportunity to, to explore the history of some of these subjects, to explore the technical details, which are really important for today's story, and also to look at some of the colorful side stories and anecdotes that accompany all of this technology and give it a more human face. And nowhere is that more true than where we start today's story. Because we don't start in 1980s San Diego or even 1970s Silicon Valley. We start in 1920s Austria with a young woman named Hedwig Eva Maria Geisel. Hedwig is an aspiring actress. She's beautiful. She's glamorous. She's incredibly intelligent. And she works her way up the ladder and becomes a, a movie star. One of the leading iconic film figures from interwar middle Europa cinema. She goes on to marry a fabulously wealthy man. But this is not a podcast about fairy tales with happy endings. This is ostensibly a podcast about deep tech. And, and Hedwig's story at this point takes a turn. It turns out that her husband is not a good man. He's abusive and controlling, treats her terribly. It also turns out that his fortune was earned as an arms dealer or more specifically, an arms dealer to the Nazis. And Hedwig doesn't like them very much either. So in the early 1930s, she leaves. She leaves her husband, she leaves Germany, and moves to the United States, where she's sufficiently famous to parlay into a career acting in Hollywood. She goes on to become one of the leading movie stars of the 1940s and 50s. We know her as Hedy Lamarr. And while her name is not exactly a household name today, she was one of the most famous movie stars of her time. She starred in all kinds of movies with all kinds of really famous actors. She was Delilah and Cecil B. DeMille's Samson and Delilah and a bunch of other roles. And in addition to this career, she was engaged in politics, working against the Nazis. And eventually that work dovetailed into work supporting the war effort as America entered World War II. And this is the point where the story kind of goes off the rails, because in addition to making war movies, doing USO tours, selling Liberty Bonds, Hedwig also solves a problem the United States Navy has with its torpedoes. You see, aiming a torpedo is pretty challenging. And the Navy had invented a radio-controlled torpedo. Right? But like RC cars today, this operated on a single fixed radio frequency, which made it really easy to jam. Lamar was a bit of a tinkerer herself. She was very intelligent, and she knew a lot about the German armaments industry. She team, teamed up with a man named George Attil, who Wikipedia describes as an avant-garde composer. But he was really more of a, a polymath. He was a self-taught engineer and an inventor. And together, they came up with a system where the transmitter, the control unit, hopped around frequencies. It spread signal across multiple frequencies. And so long as you could keep the transmitter on the launch ship synchronized to the receiver in the torpedo, this was effectively unjammable. And to build a prototype, they literally ripped out the mechanism from a player piano. You know, those old-time automated pianos. It's a big deal in season one of Westworld. If you think about those, they're kind of like the mobile version of a punch card computer. 
And this concept of spread spectrum and frequency hopping is the foundation of all of our modern communication systems. Right now, you're receiving this signal, this stream. It's crossed at least four frequency hopping networks, probably many more. And the fundamental patent underlying this foundational technology is held by a movie star and an avant-garde composer. The 1940s were just different. We'll come back to Lamar and frequency hopping in a few minutes. But another part of the story is how mobile phones work. And if you think about it, the definition of mobility is the fact that the phone can move around wirelessly. And it only connects to the telephone network at some fixed point, a base station or an antenna. And so this link between the phone and that base station are critical. Right? That's the real technical challenge that makes a phone mobile. We have a special name for this link. We call it the air interface, this last mile. Right? And the, the air interface, if you unpack it a little bit, really is solving two technical challenges. First, it handles call control, setting up a call, maintaining the call, taking the call down. Really important to avoid drop calls and things like that. Second function it has to provide is it serves as a mechanism for sharing a common resource, the radio spectrum that's being used. Right? When your phone connects to a base station today, there are probably another 20, 50, 100 phones connecting to that same base station at the same time, all sharing this limited resource around radio frequencies. Right? And as I keep harping on, the mobile operators really only have one asset. It's this radio spectrum that they control. And so they're super motivated to get all the capacity they can out of the network, to squeeze every bit out of the network. They wanna make as efficient use of their spectrum as possible. Or more formally, we say, we optimize the air interface in order to maximize spectral efficiency, right? We optimize the air interface in order to maximize spectral efficiency. Bits per second per Hertz. This idea of spectral efficiency is at the heart of all the wireless standards, all the Gs, right? And it's 90% of what we're gonna talk about today. Now, by the 1950s, Motorola, Bell Labs had invented devices that were sort of recognizably cell phones. But the service really didn't get commercialized until the 1980s. And if you've ever seen an old movie from back then or an old episode of Miami Vice, you're gonna see somebody wearing a jacket with ridiculously large shoulder pads carrying a cell phone that's ridiculously large, like a lunchbox size or the size of this brick back here, the Motorola Dynatac. And the way to think about these devices is they're essentially the minimum viable product of mobility. They established product market fit and they demonstrated that there was real consumer demand or at least commercial demand for mobile phones. But like any minimum viable product, it had a lot of deficiencies. Right? These old phones used what we call an analog air interface, right? in which voice is converted into radio waves, and then those radio waves were transmitted. This is, these had pretty poor voice quality. They weren't encrypted. And most critically, they had really limited capacity. They essentially allocated a small piece of spectrum to each phone connection. Right? And this essentially limited the capacity of any base station to you know, five or six users at a time. And as the industry sort of woke up to this opportunity and realized there was real potential here, pretty soon everyone came to realize that we needed a better air interface. And in particular, we needed a digital air interface. 
Right? In the digital error interface, voice is converted into zeros and ones, and then those are transmitted. Now, since it's software, since it's digital, we can throw software at it. We can encrypt it, we can enhance the voice quality, but we can also get much better capacity out of these links because even speaking as fast as I am right now, the speed of human voice is glacial when compared to the speed of radio waves, which is the speed of light. So making use of that, we can interleave multiple digital streams and share that same frequency and get a lot more capacity. The one drawback, however, of a digital air interface at the time was that there's no agreed upon way to build one. And so this began a period known as the standards wars in which everybody had their own air interface. In the US that meant that every mobile operator used a different air interface, which was a headache. But in Europe, it meant that every country had its own air interface, which became a real problem because it meant that you couldn't roam across Europe. And so ultimately in the early eighties, the European Union stepped in and they drew together a consortium of industry stakeholders. And together they came up with the general system for mobile or GSM. And this became the official standard of European telecom operators in, in the late eighties. And by 1991, pretty much everyone had moved over. Now, if you think about a standard, they can be really powerful because they create economies of scale. They align everybody's interests. And in the, the mobile ecosystem, it's really complicated. There are a lot of cats. You have the mobile operators, you have the base station makers, you have the handset OEMs, and you have the chip vendors supplying all of the above. Having a standard pointed everybody in the same direction, it, you know, it herded all those cats. And since at this time, most of the equipment makers and most of the handset makers were based in Europe, as other countries launched their first mobile networks, they tended to adopt GSM as well. And so by the early 90s, we got to the point where it looked like the standards wars were over after a decade, right? And that GSM had won. Spoiler alert, neither of those were true. And this is the point where Qualcomm enters the story. We'll talk more next time about how they got here. But Qualcomm came up with their own standard called CDMA, which was, let's face it, better. And I had to preface that a little bit because if you'd said that statement in the wrong bar at the wrong time during the standards wars, a fistfight could have broken out. People got incredibly energized and incredibly emotional about this subject, right? And to this day, there's lingering hostility towards Qualcomm about their role as a disruptor, this up, you know, overturning the apple cart. There's, but they really came at this with something different. And to understand why CDMA was better than GSM, it's worth exploring the technical details a little. Right, CDMA came along a little bit later, and so it could make use of better software for call control, better voice quality. But it also had better spectral efficiency. See, GSM had a sharing mechanism called Time Division Multiple Access, or TDMA. Right? And that did kind of what it sounded like. It took a fixed block of spectrum and allocated a schedule, right? I would get a few milliseconds, you'd get a few milliseconds, the next person would get a few milliseconds, and so on, and it goes back to me. And again, speed of light. At the receiving end, this would all be stitched together, and the human ear couldn't tell the difference. But it did allow much better capacity on the network. Folks at Qualcomm, though, looked at this and said, hey, guys, you're forgetting about Hedy Lamar and frequency hopping. If we take that spectrum and we spread our signals across all the spectrum, right, we can get much better capacity. 
you know, and instead of being unjammable, what we have is multiple conversations that are not interfering with each other. And we'll tie it all together with a complex coding algorithm, coding scheme, which is why this is called code division multiple access or CDMA. Now, I recognize at this point, we're getting a little abstract, right? Air interfaces, standards, all that stuff. So I wanna give an example to make it more tangible. Qualcomm spent the better part of the 1980s evangelizing CDMA to the operators and finally got one signed on. Uh, at the time, this company was called Pactel, but today we know them as Verizon. I'm just gonna call them Verizon to keep things simple, but just know that at that time they had a different name, right? And at this point, Verizon was the third or fourth largest mobile operator in the US. The leader was again, known by a different name back then, but it's today the operator known as AT&T. Verizon had a really talented group of network engineers. They had helped Qualcomm a lot to commercialize CDMA. And so they really understood the benefits of this era interface and they made the most of it. First off, they marketed their CDMA network as a premium service, right? Better voice quality, fewer drop calls. It's a premium service. But then because it had better spectral efficiency, they didn't have to build as many base stations to get the same level of coverage. Right? So that meant they had higher prices and lower costs. Right? And they took those excess profits and they did two things. First, they launched a massive advertising campaign to get new users, right? And this eventually led to this famous TV commercials, some of you may remember, where it was a man wearing pretty geeky looking glasses, wearing a Verizon work coat with a phone to his ear. And he would say, can you hear me now? And then he would take a step and he'd say, can you hear me now? And as awkward as that sounds, it was a really effective way of communicating this idea that Verizon had a better network. The second thing they did was a little counterintuitive. They actually went out and built more base stations. They already had a pretty good layer of coverage, but by adding more base stations, they had better capacity. That meant the network worked better everywhere. Uh, I was a Verizon customer at this time, and and it was it was a better network for many years. It was a better network, right? There was very rarely a place where you couldn't get Verizon coverage and could get somebody else's. It was in more places. And so over time, they attracted more users and they started to grow, right? They became the third and the second largest mobile operator. And just as they were about to overtake AT&T, AT&T went out and paid through the nose to acquire one of their peers, right? And I mentioned this because this becomes a recurring pattern throughout the 2G and 3G era, where Verizon makes better use of its air interface to out-operate its competitors and then force those competitors to make uneconomic decisions. Right? And I think it's, it's telling that this sort of fundamental day one, very esoteric choice of air interface with all the acronyms actually leads to a massive difference in economics that's measured in tens, if not hundreds of billions of dollars of greater value delivered. It's a really important early decision. And it's you know, kind of a marvel of how these things work. So these standards are really important. They have big differences in economic out outcomes. So now we are in kind of the mid nineties and Qualcomm gets to a point where CDMA is a you know, on about 20% of subscribers, right? Not taking over the world, but still it has proven that it has sustainability as staying power. 
most of the rest of the world is on GSM. A few countries have a few other things. This is also the mid-90s, though. And so everybody's talking about this thing called the internet. And the mobile operators look at their systems and they say, you know what? We can do we can do internet. We can do data too. We can be mobile broadband providers. Now to accomplish that, though, they needed two things. First, they needed spectrum, right? You adding data is they need a lot more capacity. And the second thing is they needed the standard to up, to get upgraded. Right? Now GSM had been evolving. They added GPRS, which brought text messages, and then they had added Edge, which brought sort of picture sharing picture messaging, as well as sort of limited web browsing capacity. But to really, you know, grab this bright data future, they needed a new standard, right? And this is when we start calling things by Gs, right? This is the third generation of the mobile standard. Prior to this, we didn't really label it 2G or 1G. This, but now we're having a third generation. The marketers latched onto this term to really show that it's different than what came before. So this, the operators went to the standards bodies and the standard bodies sort of reorg itself. It was, it, it had become not being sponsored by the EU is now sponsored by the UN and it renamed itself as the 3G partnership program or 3G PP, which to this day remains the guiding, the leading standards bodies in charge of the mobile standards. And 3G PP was in many senses, a really remarkable organization, telecom networking, wireless engineering, are really challenging. There are all kinds of weird use cases and pocket corner cases that do strange things. And the 3GPP had a really good structure for uncovering all those, all those problems and finding solutions to them. It was structured as a series of committees, right? At the top, there was a governing body that was essentially controlled by the, the biggest mobile operators. But below that, there was a series of committees and subcommittees and working groups which were each tasked with dividing up and solving all these different problems and getting the standard complete. These working groups, subcommittees, were largely staffed by R&D teams from the ecosystem, the vendors, right? So they would sit around, they would work in groups, different groups from different companies would come up with different solutions and the working groups and subcommittees would vote on which one was the best and ultimately pass it on up to the top. And so the operators, tasked them with coming up with the 3G standard and they set to work. <clears throat> then the carriers went out and bought some spectrum. But by this point, we're getting into the late 90s and everybody has internet fever, right? Everybody's stock is through the roof, right? It wasn't just an internet bubble. It was a tech and telecom bubble. Big companies, all, those, all the mobile operators had really big valuations. They also started to have bigger ambitions and really dream big. Right? They weren't just going to be broadband providers. They were going to provide all these incredible services on top of their network. Right? People talked about these science fiction scenarios where you'd be able to watch TV on your phone. And believe me, in, in the 90s, that was science fiction. Right? However, because of the sort of feverish nature of the times, they all ended up paying through the nose for the spectrum. The European carriers in particular essentially bankrupted themselves for a decade paying for this 3G spectrum. But then once the auctions were done, everyone had their spectrum, the standard wasn't ready. Right? So you had all these mobile operators take out big loans to buy spectrum, paying interest on it, but they can't monetize them because the standard's not ready yet. So they go back to the 3GPP and say, hey, you guys, you know, clock's ticking. And the, 
3GP says, oh, we're working, we're working, we're doing it as fast as we can, but we've come up with an official name for the standard. We're going to call it UMTS 2000. Right? Don't worry about what the UMTS stand for. It doesn't, doesn't matter. It's that 2000 bit that is key, right? They're committing to having the standard done by 2000, except they don't. Right? 2000 comes and goes, standard's not done yet. Carriers are getting really, really anxious. And of course, what happens at this time, it's 2001, the bubble bursts and everybody's stock plummets. Big companies, Lucent, Nortel, Alcatel, all see their share prices down by 50, 60%. Qualcomm actually reached its all-time high in January 2020, January 2000, right? It was the best performing stock in the world that year. And then within weeks, its stock falls by 90%. It actually doesn't regain that 2000 level until 2020. It takes them 20 years to claw, back, claw that back. And they're still trading kind of right around there today. Stocks are falling, economy's turning. All these companies look around and they say, you know, tech winter is coming. We got we to gotta cut costs, right? It's the rational decision. So just imagine you're the CEO or CFO of a company like Nokia or Ericsson at this time. Which engineers do you cut? Do you cut the ones that are working on products, projects for customers that are going to deliver revenue, hopefully soon, in the next quarter? Or do you cut the engineers who are working on long-term R&D projects that, you know, who knows when they'll be monetizable, right? Most companies take the rational decision and cut the long-term R&D engineers. Most people do that, except for Qualcomm. Qualcomm is, you know, losing money hand over fist at this point. Their stock is down 90%. They cut a lot of people, they cut a lot of projects, but they don't cut R&D work for the standard. In fact, they kind of double down. Right? And so what happens at the 3GPP is that Qualcomm shows up and there's nobody else there, right? They'll have a working group, let's say they have a proposal and Ericsson has a competing proposal. They come to the meeting of the working group, prepared, Qualcomm has all their solutions, all their engineers there. The Ericsson team isn't there. Right? They all got fired last week, and so they're not there to rebut it, and Qualcomm wins the, wins the vote because they showed up. And this happens time and time again. And Qualcomm starts to gain a lot of momentum within the standards body. Now, companies like Nokia and Ericsson they, at the exec level, they knew this was going on. They were aware of this problem. So they pinned their hopes on being able to sort of win at the last minute, at the sort of governing body level when everything has to be ratified. So it comes down to this last meeting, and this is kind of a defining moment for Qualcomm because they come prepared, they come to win, right? And they use every tool they can think of to get the vote to go their way, right? So they come with a large body of people, all their engineers, super well-prepared. They do a lot of other things too. I'm going to oversimplify a lot of this, but let me just say that Everything they did was fully compliant with the laws and the guidelines and the rules of the body. But they do things like they go look through the roster of the voting members of the 3GPP. Since these are government-sponsored, you know, 3GPP is government-sponsored body, there are a lot of uh, non-commercial representatives with votes, you know, academics, people from universities and research institutes. Qualcomm goes to these companies and says, hey, you're, you're not planning to attend 3GPP, we see. Uh, why don't you why don't we sponsor you 
send you know your faculty members they can attend and conference uh, attend the conference and network with their peers um, but you know give us your proxy vote they also noticed that there are a lot of observer seats available and here we're, we're entering into the realm of legend i don't know if this is true but this is the story that gets told about it qualcomm sees that there are a lot of institutions that have can send you know two voting members and eight observers Qualcomm makes them, you know, these these places the same deal. They say, we'll 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 sponsor your, you know, a couple of your faculty to go, but give us some of your extra observer seats. And then they take people from those universities and send them to the conference right, as observers. But they don't necessarily take people from the electrical engineering department. They take people from, say, the art department or the dance department or the music department disciplines which let's say have a noticeably different gender balance than the typical attendees of an early 2000s telecom conference. This adds a certain level of energy, some would say distraction to the proceedings. Now again, I don't know if that's true, but the point is that Qualcomm is the master of the game. They run the show. And at the end of the day, all the critical votes go their way. What that meant in, in practice was that Qualcomm technologies, Qualcomm patents are written into the standard. If you want to build a base station or a phone or chip that touches, addresses the standard in any way, you have to get a license from Qualcomm. Now, patent law is pretty clear. If you have a patent written into a standard, you have to offer a license to other people to use those patents. You can't keep them out of the standard. Patent law is a lot less clear though on how much that license is gonna cost. Pretty much all it says is licenses have to be offered on fair, reasonable, and non-discriminatory terms, FRAND. There's no numbers associated with that, right? And so this is the point in which Qualcomm's licensing business grows tremendously because everybody who wants to participate in this has to get a license from Qualcomm and pay them a royalty. Now, needless to say, there are a lot of people who don't like this in the industry. Right? For years afterwards, the CEOs of Nokia and Ericsson, whenever they talk about 3G, they insist on using the formal name, UMTS, to talk about it. In private, none of us called it UMTS, it's a marketing term. We all called it WCDMA, because that was the underlying technology. Right? In private, they called it WCDMA. But in public, they insisted on calling it UMTS because everyone knew that anything with the letters CDMA in it, that meant Qualcomm, right? And this is a, it was a four-letter word to many people in the industry. And the industry used to have a, it still does, has a trade show every year. And for a long time, it was in Cannes. It was called 3GSM. And later on, it went on to be called Mobile World Congress. It's still held in Barcelona. And for much of this decade, Mobile World Congress was sort of the hotbed of anti-Qualcomm activity. Right? Qualcomm would show up, but it was really an event for the GSM crowd. And there's all kinds of projects that came out of it and a lot of really tough marketing that came out of it. But critically, critically, Qualcomm was in the standards now. And for all intents and purposes, the standards wars were over. Now, it's going to take another... 10 years for the industry to really accept that fact. And it's going to be a pretty brutal decade. But the war's over here. 
regardless, industry, for the most part, celebrates. We finally have a 3G standard. Carriers start to roll out 3G phones and 3G networks, and then nothing happens. Turns out 3G is pretty disappointing. At heart, the problem was 3G data rates weren't that fast. By this point, most people had reliable broadband in their homes or at work, and those things were just much, much faster than what 3G could offer at the time. And this sort of leads to this rule of thumb or this you know, legend we have in, in the industry, which says that the mobile operators only make money on the even numbered Gs. 1G, exploratory, not that profitable. 2G, very profitable. 3G, not profitable. 4G fixes a lot of problems with 3G and is, is pretty profitable. 5G, not so great, but we'll, we'll get there. <clears throat> the other problem the industry faces at this point is they've all been talking about mobile services, but nobody really understood what that meant, right? Because at this point, the industry is now transitioned into the world of internet and software. And that was a, a discipline that nobody in the wireless world really understood at this point. So for instance, the, the mobile operators started to offer software on their phones, right? There would be Verizon Maps and Sprint TV. And these were all pretty terrible. Nobody really liked this. They also had software stores. You could load software onto your phone. We didn't call them app stores then, but that was the idea. <clears throat> and these were pretty terrible as well. There just wasn't that much software to buy, right? You could have a couple games, but that was it because the mobile operators were awful to deal with. They'd never understood how to deal with software developers. Right? And you know, as much as we complain today about Apple and Google and their 30% revenue share, the mobile operators were taking 50, 60% revenue share. And they wanted to control all the software on the phone. And this of course brings us to 2007. Right? Now to understand how bad this problem was, in 2007, Motorola, used 40 different versions of operating systems on its phones, like a bunch of Linux variants and a couple others. Right? This was in the 2000s. Like we all understood that how software worked. You want to have one common operating system so you have cross compatibility. But they had 40 operating systems on their phones. Nokia was a little better. They understood software, right? Nokia's rise to success was built on the back of their superior user interface of their phones. And that snake game, right? They had that little snake game. That was a big part of Nokia's success. So they understood software. And they had a high-end line of phones that were sometimes called smartphones. And they actually had a, uh, an operating system on it called Symbian. And Symbian was, was you know, a pretty good mobile operating system for the time. The problem was Nokia didn't own Symbian, right? For esoteric European reasons, Symbian was owned in part by Nokia, Ericsson, Siemens, and a couple other, all the handset, European handset makers. And, Symbi and Nokia was deathly afraid that consumers would buy Symbian phones and wouldn't care about whether it was a Nokia phone or an Ericsson phone. Like they, they understood that was a problem in software. But as a result, Nokia sort of deliberately hobbled what Symbian was capable of because they didn't want Symbian to you know, help their competitors. Set aside the fact that by this point, Siemens was exiting the business and Ericsson already had a phone, a foot outside of, you know, out the door, Nokia just couldn't get comfortable with Symbian. And so then of course, January, 2007 and the iPhone launches, right? And the iPhone was of course a, a 
major shock to the industry. The phone was beautiful. It looked like nothing else on the market then, right? Every other phone had 12 keys on it. The iPhone had one button. It had that touch screen, giant, giant screen, all this colorful stuff on it. This was completely alien to the industry. It looked just so different. It was, it was really a big shock to everybody, right? Even more important though, is they broke the carrier's software hold. In the years leading up to the iPhone launch, Apple went around to all the mobile operators looking for a launch partner. And they happened upon AT&T at one of those moments in which AT&T was very worried about losing share to Verizon. Just like I talked about a few minutes ago, Verizon was out operating them using that air interface to its full advantage. And they were growing faster than AT&T was and were poised to overtake them and become the number one carrier. Now, folks at Apple, I think we can all agree, are pretty good at negotiation. And they smelled blood. And as a result, they got the best possible deal they could from AT&T. And critical to this was they demanded that only Apple, only themselves, could control the software on the phone. AT&T would have no control over their phone software. Right? It, was, it wasn't until years later that you could even get an AT&T app on the, on the iPhone. There's no preloaded carrier spamware, nothing like that. And then that obviously worked. AT&T started doing incredibly well. And so two years later, when it was Verizon's turn to try to get the iPhone, they, they were now the ones on their back foot losing share to AT&T. So they were in no position to, to counter negotiate against Apple either. And at that point, the model was broken. The carriers were pushed out of mobile software entirely. Apple and then later Google were in charge of software. Now, obviously that's led to problems today. We can debate that another time about the platform control of Android and iOS. But when compared to what came before, it's still a major improvement. Apple made mobile software a thing Let's face it, that's led to a lot of improvements in our life. Right? Problems too, but right, it's definitely much, much better than what we could have expected back in those early 3G days. <clears throat> so now the world is different. The mobile operators have much smaller ambitions. As the 2000 aughts wear on, they start to talk about advancing the standard further. Right? right. The new standard is going to be called LTE or long-term evolution, right? And that evolution part is key. It's just small incremental changes, improvements. It gets better spectral, a lot better spectral efficiency, which leads to better data rates, which are important. It fixes a lot of the problems with 3G. But nothing about the standards process changes, right? Qualcomm is still very powerful, right? Really, you know, not quite running and controlling things, but immensely influential. And it's only further cemented when they buy a company called Flareon, which had a lot of patents in OFDM, right? And just like there was TDMA and CDMA for 2G, the key acronym here for, for 4G is OFDM. And Flareon's patents plus Qualcomm's own patents ensure that we're pretty much in the same place uh, as we were with, with 3G. Qualcomm has a, a lot of patents written into the 4G standard as well. <clears throat> Now, I mentioned a few minutes ago that the standards wars were really over with 3G, but the industry was still fighting this, right? And at one of those Mobile World Congresses, a bunch of the incumbents get together 
and they create something called Project Stockholm. Like, yes, it, it had a silly code name. And this was essentially Nokia, Ericsson, Broadcom, a couple others, all got together and tried to create a coordinated effort to push back against Qualcomm's influence. Right? So there's all kind of marketing and PR and comm stuff, some better than others, um, pushing back against Qualcomm. And it also led to litigation. Right? Broadcom, with Nokia and Ericsson's support, sued Qualcomm over essentially over Qualcomm's control of the 4G patent pool. And this is one of the most brutal corporate litigations I've ever seen. It was, I mean, it was very ugly. They spent hundreds of millions of dollars on both sides. A bunch of lawyers got disbarred because of it. This was, this was ugly stuff. And ultimately, Broadcom won. Qualcomm had to give them a license and pay them a bunch of money. But this turned out to be a, a Pyrrhic victory because not so long after winning this, Broadcom gave up. Right? They exited the mobile mobile business. They stopped selling their cellular modem. We'll talk more about how Qualcomm, you know, does so well in the market on the next installment. But at this point, right, Broadcom wins, but really loses. You know, they win the battle, they lose the war. And slowly, as we get to the end of 2000s, the aughts, get into 2010, the industry slowly recognizes that it's it's true. Like, this is this is the way things are. And they start to reconcile themselves to Qualcomm having the position it does. <clears throat> right. And I, I remember in 2010, I went to Mobile World Congress and day one, 10 a.m. keynote speaking slot was Paul Jacobs, the CEO of Qualcomm. Right. And here was, you know, the enemy CEO given the prime time best speaking spot of the whole show. And I think symbolically to me and to a lot of other people, this really signaled the end of the standards wars. This is when everyone finally accepted that the standards wars were over. Qualcomm was an integral part of the standards process. Let's move on to other things. A couple years later, or a year later, the 4G LTE standard is finalized. And, that, and that's the official end of the standards wars. All the standards, GSM, CDMA, the Chinese TDS CDMA standard, Japanese standards, all get merged into one path, right? Standards wars are now over. Now, in many ways, that's kind of the end of the story. Right? Um, because in addition to sort of getting through this whole period of conflict, there's another important thing that happens with 4G. Right? With 4G, we've essentially run out of ways to manipulate radio spectrum, right? We, we modulate amplitude, phase, frequency, time, space, tone, right? That's it. There are no more levers to pull. For each of the generations, each of the Gs, there's, has, there's been sort of one defining acronym to, to speak to the way that we are improving spectral efficiency, right? TDMA, CDMA, OFDM, right? Each of those algorithms essentially delivers the bulk of the gains of spectral efficiencies. They're finding some new way to manipulate the spectrum to squeeze more capacity out of the system. But with 4G, we've kind of run out of levers to pull. And so we, when we get to 5G, which we're now in, there's no one single thing that sort of defines 5G. It's, you know, a hundred small tweaks 
In a lot of ways, this is analogous to Moore's law and semiconductors, right? We're starting to run out of steam with Moore's law. We're bumping up against the laws of physics and what we can actually do. And, you know, I don't want to be overly gloomy. Both have a good decade ahead of them still to go. We're still going to get more gains out of wireless spectrum. We're still going to get more gains out of Moore's law. But those gains are smaller. They take longer to arrive. They're more expensive. And things are, you know, we've run out. We're running out of steam in a lot of this. Now, the mobile operators want to keep growing things. Uh, but in the past, they've been able to rely on improvements in spectral efficiency. They get more out of the spectrum they have to deliver better capacity. As we move into, you know, the later half of 5G and on into 6G, what they're really talking about to get those, those capacity improvements is not spectral efficiency, but adding more spectrum. And that's okay, except we've kind of run out of the good spectrum. We're starting to push into frequency bands that are a little bit harder to use, right? So take 5G, for instance, right? A big part of the 5G standard is what's called millimeter wave. And millimeter wave frequencies are fantastic. You can get multiple gigabits per second on your phone. The problem is the higher the frequency, the shorter the range. So a cellular base station today has a range that you'd measure in kilometers, one, two kilometers, something like that. Millimeter wave, you measure the range in meters, right? It's roughly the, the, the range of a really good Wi-Fi access point. So you're going to need a lot more of them, right? To get the same level of coverage, you're going to need a lot more of those. Someone's going to have to pay for them. You have to find places to put them. And all of those are really challenging. It'll arrive, but it's going to take a lot longer than the earlier deployments, right? It's going to take years and years and years to get this rolling about. And then you're going to start hearing a lot about 6G in the next few years. And 6G is in many ways even worse, right? They're using even, even more problematic, higher frequency bands. Right? So that's where we stand today. We're going to keep going forward. Things will, data rates and speeds will continue to gradually improve. We'll be able to do pretty incredible things on our phones. I mean, it's it was science fiction not that long ago, right? But the easy gains are gone, right? And uh, and that's where the standards are today. So thank you for listening. Please uh, tell your friends, click like and subscribe, and uh, we'll see you next time on The Circuit. Thank you.